All right, Tom, we'll go on to the next question from an MBT forum user. This is along the same lines of the same theme as imagination. This, this comes from a professional actor. Um, as an actor, you need to build characters and act in the moment. Acting is to act truthfully under imaginary circumstances. There are many acting uh, methods and techniques, um, such as emotional memory, focus on intention of the character, and let the ego go and be the character. I see the value in the acting process to use MBT as a method, um, as, as make a method as good and simple as possible using MBT. For example, to build a character and get information of the character in a meditative state. So his question is, um, do you have any good ideas on how an actor can build a deep and human character? Also, is there any way to tap into imaginary circumstances in a different way that actors don't use today or don't think of? Michael Chekhov, famous actor and director, used very spiritual methods in some way that reminds me of MBT. Do you have any insights on that, Tom? Well, um, first of all, I would like to say that we, we tend to denigrate imagination. We think of imagination as being something we just make up and it's not very important, it's not very significant, and it's not very fundamental. That's not the case. We are consciousness. The, the data we create is also uh, very powerful. Your imagination is a, is a, is a powerful tool and it's a, it's a way to focus your mind. So if you delve into this character that you're going to portray, um, with your imagination, what you will do is you will put some of your own, you, you will make a meld, a, a combination. Uh, um, so you'll, you'll uh, create a, a synthesis of your own personality in the terms or in the form factor of this character's personality. Now, you can do that with imagination, and that's good. But one, you have to realize imagination is more than just a lightweight tool. It's a very heavyweight tool. You can also go into a, say, meditation state and bring up this character and become that character. You can put yourself, you can be awash in the data that describes this character, even if it's a fictional character, you see. You can bring up the character, feel their feelings, taste what they taste, hear what they hear, see it the way they see it. And in that meditation state, you can do that to the point that it becomes very familiar to you. It's a very familiar set of feelings and attitudes and emotions that you have while you are experiencing that character from the inside. And that will give you insights into the way this character reacts and interacts and thinks and feels. And then that, makes it, that will make it easier for you to become this character while you're acting out the character. Though you still, of course, will bring your own filters from your own experience to it. You can, uh, you can learn a great deal about another character, even a fictional one, while you're in meditation. You just be it, feel it, become the character, and then go out and have whatever adventures your storyline is about. If your storyline is some kind of adventure thing where you're climbing high mountains, well then while you're in that meditation state and while you're taking on the persona of that character, go climb high mountains with that character. Uh, have some of the, the events that are going to be in your script. Experience those events as your character while in a meditation state. That will give you insights and connect you in a very strong way with that point of view, which you need to portray you know, as an actor, that set of feelings. So that would be one way I'd say, no, I don't know whether that's part of acting school, whether they do that sort of thing or not, but uh, the meditation state would be good. You can do the same thing from an out-of-body state or uh, from a lucid dream state. But when you're in these states where you are, um, basically you've let go of the physical, so you're no longer your avatar. 
you're free now as consciousness, your point of consciousness. Now you can assume a different avatar because you're not in this physical reality anymore. And that avatar should be the avatar of your character, even if it's a fictional character. See, again, don't, don't uh, underestimate the power of imagination. Imagination is a very rich and powerful construct, and it can do much. Because once you get that started, it'll take on a life of its own. You won't be imagining that you're the character. You'll be the character. You'll interact the character. You'll feel what the character feels in those situations. And that's easier to do if you've let go of your avatar in the physical. Because we're, we're used to only, you know, only dealing with data from one avatar at a time. So when your avatar is this uh, fictional character in a role that you're going to play, then it's easier to, to become that character if you have let go of the avatar in this reality, which is a thing you do in dreams, lucid dreams, out-of-body states, or in point consciousness. All of those can, uh, can be of great help to, to uh, understand the feelings, intents, motivations, and nuances of a, of a character. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, you have, again, proven that your My Big Toe has practical applications in every aspect of our lives, including acting. <laughs> Love that. Um, the next question is from another MBT user, and it's on the right brain and left brain. It's a light right brain, left brain question. And you've spoken about this before, and just recently I, I listened to your broadcast with Hilary Ramo just a few days ago. Uh, that's been posted on your Facebook page and on MBT Events Facebook page, and is available to listen to. It's called Physics and Consciousness at CapricornRadio.com, where you, you uh, expand on the right brain and left brain uh, concepts. Someone asked you a question about that. The reader's question is, in MBT terms, what is it to be left or right brained? Is it as simple as intellectual and intuitive being? And the second part of it, are personality types like in the Myers-Briggs test, only that particular free willness, free will awareness units experience this time around, or is this a more fundamental aspect of the particular individuated unit of consciousness? I, I hope that's clear. I don't know how. Okay, how well, there's a, kind of a hodgepodge of two or three or four questions all kind yes. of wadded up in there together. Um, <laughs> the, the reason, well, let's, let's make it different. You come with certain proclivities. You come with certain uh, proclivities because that's part of the individuated unit of consciousness that is your parent, that is you, that you are a part of, that you're representing. So you come in with those. And those may have a tendency to be more uh, logical process or more intuitive. So part of it is what you come in with. And then, of course, once you're here, you have all the influences of your environment, and those can push you toward a more uh, big picture, a more intuitive view of the world, or they can push you toward a more uh, logical process view of the world. So all of these things, you know, you have many influences that will help you move one way or the other. People in your life, if you happen to grow up and you're in a family of, uh, you know, doctors or engineers or something like that, where everybody thinks in terms of logical process, well, that environment will encourage you to act that way too. So even if you came in with a very intuitive viewpoint of the world, you will gain some, some ability and, and some uh, facility with logical process just because that is the environment you're in. You're in a Western culture, you're gonna get more exposure to logical process than you would probably in an Eastern culture, although East and West are having fewer and fewer differences these days. We're all kind of melding towards something more common, but you know, a hundred years ago, you would have had a very different uh, set of cultural experiences between East and West, not so much today. But anyway, we have all of that. Now, when it comes to things like Myers-Briggs and uh, these ways we have of taking personality traits and breaking them up into a, a, um, 
kind of a small set of of different types. Okay, Myers Briggs. I have to think. Uh, there's what four letters, and each one can have certain meanings, and you can take those four letters and put them together in any order, so you can do the math and come up with how many different types does Myers Briggs, you know, speak to? It speaks to some. It's a really small number. It's not like you know hundreds of different types of personalities. It comes out with you know like 20 or 16 or 30 or some number that's less than 100, I guess, with the numbers that it works with. So it's a it's a relatively small grouping, and it does seem to connect pretty accurately with a lot of people. Well, we can also another another scheme besides Myers Briggs would be the zodiac, right? We can break people up into 12. 12 groups of different personality characteristics that we uh, have in astrology. So that's another way of grouping them up. Part of this grouping may mirror the fact that we are part of a digital simulation. There may be certain set ways, certain patterns that, that we represent. So, it's it's uh, it's a little surprising that seven and a half billion people can all be categorized under you know twelve or you know thirty different personality characteristics. That seems like that's such a small number because we're all different. So how come we're all so unique and different with our own uh, set of experiences, and yet we all fit into a very small grouping, a small number of pigeonholes? When we look at these these uh, these tests, well, partly that's because we don't entirely fit under any of those pigeonholes. We just more or less fit under this pigeonhole. Whether it's the zodiac is the way you construct pigeonholes, or whether it's Myers Briggs way that you construct pigeonholes, and there's probably two or three other such ways that uh, parse out personality and, and personal characteristics. There's one called uh, uh, from from Colby. Colby Institute, and they look at cognitive, um, how should we say, the cognitive aspects of the human, which is more of the instinctual ways you, you act as opposed to the uh, intellectual ways that you act. So that's another grouping of these pigeonholes that we can put ourselves into. Well, if you think of this as a digital system, the digital system is going to have a set of characteristics of which it's going to, you know, fit into, of which it's going to generate. So it would make sense that you start with a digital system with certain kinds of characteristics, certain kinds of ways of being. There will be a certain number of permutations and combinations you can make out of a fundamental set, and that we'll all tend to show that. And because people have lived with, with this these ideas, they're able to come up with the, you know, with the, say, the Briggs idea of, of uh, how we break that out into, into pieces. So some of that's innate. Some of it has to do with the digital nature of ourselves that allows that to, to happen. And some of it is just broad groupings. You know, at very high levels, you can group things into high-level categories. And that's, uh, it can be grouped up in many different, many different ways. And most of us kind of fit into our group more or less, but not necessarily perfectly. But we see the connection. If somebody says, oh, you're a Scorpio, I see, then you kind of have these characteristics. And most Scorpios say, yeah, sort of. I sort of fit that, you know, but not entirely. Well, that's, that's a very broad group. So a lot of people can find themselves in that kind of a broad uh, top-level grouping. It's not a, not a hard thing to, to do. So I, I've answered part of that question. Uh, you can maybe see, is there a part that I didn't uh, didn't talk about? Well, it's, it's um, I think the first statement was, what is it, or the question, what is it to be, what is it to be left or right-brained? And yeah. I think that's... Yeah, well, it, it, you know, I think they're saying, where does that come from? Why do you like that? And I tried to answer that. Some of it's proclivity that you get from your, your culture consciousness, or from your IOC, individual unit of consciousness, and some of it is, is uh, environmental. 
But what, what they are, what the states mean is that the, the right brain tends to be more holistic in their viewpoint. They see big pictures. And the left brain tends to be more detailed. They look at logical process. They need to have this leads to that, leads to that, leads to the next thing. And that's the logical process as opposed to a right brain who just doesn't take those individual steps to get there. They just kind of get there in an intuitive, uh, non-logical way. Okay, there's just two different ways of, of uh, looking at the, at the world, the way you interact with the world. So we call that right brain and left brain. And that's a matter of the fact that they do the, the, the brain scans and they see that uh, certain kinds of activities tend to light up the right brain. And these are the holistic big picture activities. And some of the activities tend to light up the left brain, which tend to be the logical process activities. So they've just, you know, we've just turned this into right brain, left brain. Not so much that the right and left brain uh, create them. It's just, you know, the brain is a virtual brain. You know, the brain doesn't process, doesn't think, doesn't store. The brain is just a, a virtual brain and a virtual character that, that uh, you know, has these various abilities to think. So if you have a well-developed um, left brain, what that means is your, your consciousness has, the, uh, has less constraints in logical process. So again, consciousness leads, the body follows. So if you're a consciousness and you have, you have very much uh, focused in logical process, then you will end up uh, exercising, you know, the, the things that a left brain can do. And if you're the opposite, you will end up exercising the things that a right brain can do. But the right brain is, and the left brain, the brain itself just sets constraints. And as we grow up, we we eliminate those constraints and we can do more. So that's you know that's kind of what it what it is. The brain itself doesn't create consciousness. The brain itself limits what consciousness can do with that avatar. So if you happen to be born with a brain that has defective brain chemistry, then that's just an extra constraint on the consciousness that has to work with that avatar. They have to work with an avatar that has dysfunctional brain chemistry. Okay, or if you have an avatar that only has one arm, then you, you know, the consciousness has to work with that avatar with one arm. It adds constraints to what that consciousness can do with that avatar. So the, the physical brain just adds constraints, just like the physical body. It adds and takes away constraints of what the consciousness can do with that body. But consciousness leads and body follows, which means the consciousness wants to do more. So the consciousness tends to be a left brain as it came in, but wants to develop more of its right brain. Well, it can do that. It can lead and that right brain can develop within the limits of the rule set to, you know, to eliminate those constraints, to give it less constraints for the right brain. So the consciously is the body will follow as best it can within the rule set to go where the consciousness wants to go, to do what the conscious wants to do. Depends on the, the uncertainty and, and the nature of the constraint uh, that it can, you know, it can make changes. So if you're born with one arm, then you know, the conscious may want that, uh, that second arm, but it's not going to grow one because the rule set doesn't support people growing new arms you see if they don't have one so the rule set doesn't support it then it's going to have to deal with the constraint but the rule set does support people being right brain and people being left brain and even if you have a little dysfunctional brain chemistry there's a lot of uncertainty with things like that as opposed to not having an arm there's no uncertainty there there's a lot of uncertainty with what's going on in your brain chemistry so that's something that you can affect more easily with your intent all right, Tom. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I think that covered the question well. Um, speaking of physical brain and non-physical components, Oliver's question is very interesting. What is your take on Tourette's syndrome? Is it primarily caused by problems with the physical brain, or is there a spiritual component to it? And what advice would you give to someone with Tourette's syndrome 
who asked you for help to overcome his tics. Okay, now for those that don't know what Tourette's syndrome is, uh, someone with Tourette's has a propensity to have facial tics, uh, little spasms, and they also have a tendency to just blurt things out sometimes, uh, a phrase or words or a, uh, an expletive, a swear word, you know, whatever. They just inappropriately just, you know, kind of, they just blurt it out. Not because they really intended to do that. It just seems to pop out of them without their, their control. Okay, that's what, uh, that's kind of the, I'll give you an idea what Tourette syndrome is. It's kind of involuntary, uh, ticking and, and uh, voicing of, of things that then, of course, seem very inappropriate to other people. There's no reason why your face should screw up like that. There's no reason why you should have shouted that word or, or said that thing in the middle of that conversation that seems out of place. And uh, yes, there is, there is uh, some brain chemistry involved in that. That is uh, rule set, some constraints that the rule set is uh, you know, allowing those constraints that are within the rule set, but they are uh, dysfunctional brain chemistry. And some part of that is also the fear within the consciousness and those two feed on each other. So as you start out with some brain chemistry issues and it creates say a problem with you, that problem then you feel like you're kind of, you're not, you're not acting appropriately or you're not feeling appropriately, or you're not thinking appropriately. And as you feel that inappropriateness, it causes fear. And as that fear builds, well, of course it does, it creates more inappropriateness. And the more inappropriateness you experience, inappropriateness you experience, the more fear you have. So there is a, there is a consciousness component as well as the, as well, as well as the physiological uh, component, which is a constraint. So the brain chemistry is not quite right. And of course, that's just a, a, a probability thing. Your, your biochemistry has lots of very detailed processes that has to go through to develop into a normal set of, of brain chemistry. And anywhere along the line, something could go wrong. In other words, it's a very uh, statistical, very probabilistic process. That's why we have such variation because there's so much possibility that's involved in, in the rule set here in creating an avatar that the avatar can come out in a, in a million different ways. That's why we're all very different and unique as individuals. So all of that probability can express itself in a myriad of ways and having some brain chemistry issues is just one of the ways that, that you know, those possibilities can come out. So then once you have that, the problem is that it then tends to, in some people, kind of um, get in a downward spiral because that creates the problem. The fear gets going, which creates more of a problem, which creates more fear, and it ends up that it's a two-pronged thing. So in order to get rid of it, you need to work both parts of it. You need to help change the brain chemistry, which is actually easier to change than something like a you know only having one arm you can change brain chemistry with intent um, if you work on it slowly it takes it's not something you're going to do quick it's not something you're going to change you know with one meditation experience it's something you're going to change over two or three years four years of continually um, putting your intent to make that change but at the same time you need to change yourself at the spiritual level at the consciousness level to let go of the fear, to accept what you, you know, what and who you are, to, to accept it, deal with it, and have the courage to be it. And uh, as you do that and work on the brain chemistry problems, you can work yourself out of something like that. But that's one of those things that's really easy to say and not nearly as easy to do because the, the two tend to feed each other. So it's like you have to climb out of a hole that you already have gotten into. So it's not an easy thing to do, but it can be done. You just have to first, I think, start with the psychological part or start with the, uh, the consciousness quality part. Just accept that you are who you are and how you are and, and let go of any fear 
associated with that. Just be the way you are and deal with it in a, in a positive way. And if that creates problems for other people, well, you can explain to them that you have Tourette's syndrome and, you know, I may do these things, uh, you know, nothing personal or no, uh, nothing, uh, you know, negative intention. It's just the way it is. And then other people will tend to accept that too. But as you're afraid of it and you don't mention it and you hide it and then it comes out anyway, then other people don't take it well. Again, that all just feeds on itself and makes things worse. So accepting it, being it, and then using intent to modify it. So when you feel that sort of thing coming on, learn to, to, to feel that that sort of a Tourette's event is beginning to happen. It's not just instantaneous. You can get a sense of that in your consciousness that something's starting to, to, to happen here that is going to have me you know, blurt something out or say something or tick, then catch it early. Try to relax it, let it go. Try to you know, uh, let that episode pass without you actually doing anything, and without responding to it. And that will be impossible and very difficult to begin with, but if you don't give up and you keep working at it, and don't expect to fix it all quickly. Expect just tiny little improvement, just tiny little improvement, that's fine. Then build a tiny little bit more improvement and a tiny little bit more, and you will see that as time goes by, you can, you can uh, work your way out of that. Uh, well, let's put it this way, you can possibly work your way out of that. It's not a given that everybody will be able to work their way out of it but it is a possibility that you can work your way out of it with, with your intent uh, and with a very positive attitude. And if you have friends and other people who would also uh, want to uh, uh, work on that with you, then that will help too, or family or whatever. Let them put some positive energy into that uh, removing that constraint from your avatar. And, uh, all together, it will it will add up to more than if you're just doing it yourself. But you are the one that's most powerful changer of your own system. Other people can nudge you, but you have to be the one that actually does the work. Is that is that good enough, uh, Oliver? Does that give you kind of the answer to what you yeah, wanted? Sure, absolutely. All right, Tom. We'll go on to the next question from Paul from the MBT forum. I've been out of body several times, but I never really left PMR awareness altogether. I can hold point consciousness for several seconds when meditating and hold it off and on, but it is interspersed with thoughts and pictures. I know that I actually live in non-physical matter reality and physical matter reality simultaneous and operate that way about 90% of the time, unless I choose to devote more heavily to one or the other reality due to circumstances at hand. My question is, what is being in NPMR 100% like? <laughs> um, I don't really know how to answer that one. You know, it, it's like being 100% in NPMR. Uh, it's uh, hard to describe it in any other ways. It's just that you are totally there. You're not aware of your physical existence at all. Your physical existence is just not in your, your mind. It's not in your awareness. So it's when you put 100% uh, in in, of, you, of your awareness, 100% of your awareness is now in other reality system other than this physical reality system. So that's what it's like. It's, um, most of us experience that here. We know what 100% of our, of our awareness being in the physical reality means. Um, you know, we're just all here. Every bit of our awareness is in this reality frame. That's uh, a common experience. Well, let's not, when we say all, let's, let's talk about, you know, let's not be quite as, as um, uh, what is it, absolute. Let's just say that most of the time, most of us are at least 99.99% here. Well, there are times that you can be 99.999% there in the non-physical. 
Now we don't want to argue about that 0.001 you know percent that might be in the other place. That becomes insignificant. So maybe that will help you. And you know, it's not necessarily that you have to be absolute. It's just that it's a it's the great majority of you is one place or the other. I think that's what we mean. Once we get past the 99, you know, 0.9, we probably call that 100% whether it really is or not. If you want to get down to splitting hairs, there may not be really 100%. There may always be a little tiny sliver of you someplace, someplace else other than the reality that most of you are in. So it's the, you know, it's a pretty obvious thing. So if you can get, if you can change those percentages from 80 to 20 and then switch it the other way, to 20 to 80 between physical and the non-physical, well, just a little bit of effort, you ought to be able to make it 99.9 and, and 0.1 as well in either one of those cases. So that's just a matter of having the intent to do it and letting the other go. Sometimes people are a little afraid to let go of the physical entirely. There's a fear component there. If they let go of the physical entirely, they're not sure that they will know how to come back because it's that part that they leave back in the physical, that awareness is back there that they use to pull themselves back. And that fear may be something that is keeping you from uh, going all the way, but you will come back. You don't have to worry about how you get back. That, uh, that will just happen by itself. So let that fear go and you won't have a, you won't have a problem being 99.9 .9 in either reality frame. All right, Tom, the next question from John on the MBT forum. Ego, what are its origins and why does it exist? Does all new consciousness inherently have ego? And he's asking about OM, which is your acronym for Absolute Unbounded Manifold in your My Big Toe books. Um, did OM have, a, have ego? Um, because he was a single unit and therefore didn't have other to think about. So that is kind of the gist of the question. Um, I thought that fear and belief would be more of a product of one's environment and upbringing through what they've learned. But is ego, would you describe ego as selfishness? Um, and, or is fear and ego the same thing? Well, I wouldn't, you know, fear, certainly selfishness uh, requires ego. People who are selfish have ego, but I wouldn't necessarily equate the two of them identically. Uh, it's more being self-focused is the ego, um, self-centered. But self-focused is probably the, the best way of, of saying it. It's about self uh, as opposed to being about other. And we have to think in terms of your intention. What is your intent? What is, the, what is behind your actions or your thoughts or your feelings? Are they about self or are they about other? Now, we can confuse ourselves there because we can say that, um, you know, I want my children to grow up to be doctors. You know, all my children need to be doctors because doctors make a lot of money and they have a lot of respect in the community and that's what I want for my child, therefore my child needs to be a doctor. And you can say, well, that's not about me. That's just about my child. But that's probably not the case. You see, that's really about you and what you want for your child. And you are at the focus of that. So don't think that that's about other and that's not ego. That would sound to me to be more about ego, what you want for that child, not necessarily what the child wants to be or do or become. So that is a ego. So we can get a little yeah, we can be tricked by what we think is about other sometimes when it's really about ourselves. So where does ego come from? Why does it exist? Well, you can think of the, the um, idea of consciousness evolving. And when consciousness was not very evolved, and that would take us back to the AUO, you know, the, the very uh, uh, before AUM in my, in my book uh, acronym terminology, uh, that's when uh, consciousness first evolved into, into an awareness that we would call conscious. Um, I'm sure there was a lot about self in there, and it was hard to be about others since everything was self. But to evolve, it had to decrease entropy. And it found that in order to decrease entropy more effectively, it needed to break into pieces. 
And these pieces need to cooperate and care about each other. Otherwise, it was a high entropy relationship rather than a low entropy relationship. So basically, just the concept of evolution toward lower entropy states okay, was an evolution toward letting go of ego and becoming more focused with your intent on other, on cooperation. Because now we have a social system, and the social system is optimized by people caring about each other. The social system is, you know, what the other word would be, anti-optimized, is, is, uh, is not optimized by people caring just about themselves and the hell with everybody else. You know, it's all about me and what I can get. That does not optimize the social situation. That uh, does the opposite. So the, the consciousness did indeed have a lot of ego and had to grow up, had to lower its entropy. And we start with an individuated unit of consciousness that creates a partition for a free will awareness unit to, to interact uh, with an avatar. And we bring with that whatever amount of fear and ego and belief. We, not, we, not, we don't bring the individual and specific fears and ego uh, expressions and beliefs of that uh, entity, but we bring along the the proclivity, we bring along the uh, potential for the fear, ego, and belief from that IUOC. Now, what we make of it, how we construe it, how we build it uh, specifically has to do with our experience and interaction here with our, our new avatar, you see. But we come in with a certain uh, potential proclivity toward those things, to be more fearful or less fearful or more self-centered or less self-centered. We can come in with that, but then how we individually express that with our avatar or through our avatar depends on the avatar and the avatar situation and all sorts of other things. So ego is a product of fear. If you, if you can get rid of all your fear, well then all your ego is gone as well. And probably all of your belief will be gone as well too, since most of that is also fear-based. So yes, uh, the uh, AUO, the, the prototype of consciousness that was one thing, uh, did have to learn to focus upon other. And as it learned that, it evolved, you see? So yes, we come from a, a, uh, a consciousness that was very self-focused originally, because it was just one thing. And now we have to evolve beyond that so that's what we're that's what we're doing and we do come in with a certain amount of proclivity and potential for fear and ego and belief and uh, our job is to reduce that potential for fear ego and belief and as we reduce it it's reduced in our individual unit of consciousness which means the next avatar with the next uh, free will awareness unit that's going to attach to the next avatar will come with a little less proclivity and potential for fear, ego, and belief. And that's how we grow up. Tom, our last question is from John from the MPT Forum. It's on intellect and operating from out of intellect and operating at the being level. Um, how does that work throughout the whole larger consciousness system? And are we given a certain, a set amount of intellect when we enter into this virtual reality? Um, if we operated at, at being level, would this virtual reality want, run better? Do we need certain amounts of intellect to offset the being level in order to function in a virtual reality for certain tasks? Um, Okay, could, I, hear a, I, hear, well, yeah, I hear a confusion here. Let me address that first, and then you can bring up the rest of the question. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a, a thinking pattern here, and a lot of people uh, uh, get this idea, is that the being level doesn't have an intellect, and the intellect doesn't have a being level. These are two separate things that we have. We have this intellectual level and we have this being level. And if you're all being level, then you don't have a mind. You don't think. And if you're an intellect, then you don't have, you know, you're all intellect. You're just all 
process out of your head and you're totally out of touch with your emotions and, and your intuitive side and so on because you're just an intellect. But it's not like that. You see, a, you, know, you start as a, as a potential, okay? And your potential is a free will awareness unit. And you attach to an avatar, and that avatar is a is maybe a not yet born, or maybe a newborn, or whatever. And after that, you get to express this potential of yours in terms of your experience that you have as an avatar. So you don't come in with a blank slate, as psychologists sometimes believe. You come in with a slate fully fully written on with your potential from your you know that your avatar gets from the from its uh, individuated unit of consciousness. But what you make of that potential has to do with the choices you make, which has to do with your environment, which has to do with the choices you have to make, You know what choices are presented to you, and then the choices that you make. And as you make those choices, then you, you change. You start to exercise that potential, and that potential starts to become expressed in very specific ways which is the way your personality then kind of grows as you uh, experience your existence through this avatar. Okay, so now the when you let's let's start now from a, from an opposite uh, end. If you get rid of your fear altogether, and you have no fear, so then your ego is gone, and you have no ego, and you have no beliefs. Then what you are at the core, we say, is is your is just your being level. You exist at the being level, but that being level has an intellectual component. That being level can think. The being level can uh, do logic. It can make choices. It's not that you now are just some sort of an amorphous piece of putty that just emotes your way through life without an intellect because you're all at the being level. The being level has an intellectual part. You see, it has a thinking part. The being level is different than the intellectual level because the being level represents your core. And we call this intellectual level an intellectual level just because most of us are full of fear and ego. And that's what our intellect mostly does. It's, it's in, you know, ego is awareness in the service of fear. That's what ego is. So it's our awareness in the service of fear. And our awareness in the service of fear then becomes dominated by what we call our intellect. So now we're giving our intellect this this role of of ego, you know, kind of the the, the thing that that uh, works with our ego and belief and our intellect. We put all that in a basket and call that our intellectual level. But we only do that because that's the way most people are. So that kind of fits that description starts to fit most people. That's what their intellect does. You know, their intellect is dominated by fear and ego. But it doesn't mean that. Uh, you know, you don't have awareness at the being level. Awareness in the service of love is not, you know, it's still thinking. It's still making choices. But because the because our because people mostly are awareness in the service of fear, you know, we call that intellect. Awareness in the service of love is also intellect. It's just not intellect that's in the service of fear. And since that happens so infrequently, you know, we uh, sometimes get confused because I talk about the intellectual level versus the being level. And now people think, you, you know, that the being level is just a feeling thing that can't think. It's not like that. Awareness is awareness. And you have awareness in the service of fear and you have awareness that's in the service of love. When you let go of. And, you know, a lot of this confusion is, is my fault because I, you know, talked about the intellectual level. I did that in very practical terms because that's the way most people are. But what happens is, is uh, people think that uh, then there is no intellect uh, that can be in the service of, of love. So, sorry, guys. That's just a confusing part of the way I use the words. I probably should have been cleverer and defined a, a different word than intellect for that uh, awareness in the service of fear thing. But that's the way it is. So now I have to struggle to explain what it all means. If you, if, if you get rid of your fear then, and you get rid of that ego, then you become a whole person. You at the being level are, are everything. You, you are the thinking part. 
the the uh, cognitive part is there the feeling part is there there is no subconscious there is no part of you that you're not aware of you don't have a an id and a subconscious that kind of are off interacting in their own you know in their own space and you don't know about it it's just you suddenly get feelings and you suddenly get get um you know imperatives things you have to say or do and it kind of blurred out of the subconscious and you think well that's not really me you know that's that's this hidden part that comes out that i'm not in control of that well you only have that that uh, subconscious that unconscious or, or not conscious part of yourselves and uh, and that id which is your instincts you only have those because you have fear when you let go of fear you become a whole person. You're aware of all of yourself. You never have a part of you that you really don't control, that you don't know, that just kind of bubbles out of you unexpectedly. You now are the whole person. So at that point, your intellect, your thinking part, your cognitive ability is alive and strong as ever. It's just no longer in the service of fear, you see. So that's a that's a little bit of a trying to explain myself, you know, out of the problem that I caused by by talking about the you know the intellectual level being the the egoic level because it mostly is for most people so that works, but it's 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 not you know that's not fundamentally the way it has to be. You will also have an intellect or a thinking part, a cognitive part at the being level as you let go of fear. You will no longer be dominated by this intellect in the service of fear, which is ego. And from the from the fear and the ego come most of your belief. So that's the way to try to break that out. And uh, I apologize for the for the confusion. But as a whole person, you think and you are, you know, and you be and you are exactly what your core is. You have no image, you're just yourself. You're entirely authentic. You're not uh, acting at all. Instead of acting the way you think you should or acting in a way that you think will manipulate others or acting in some other way, you're not acting. You're just being. You do things because that's the way you are, not because that's the way you think you should be or not the way, it's not what you think you should do. Oh, look at that poor person there. I should help them. Instead, you just, help them because that's who and what you are. You don't really think about, is this something I should do or shouldn't do? Do I have time? That sort of thing. You just do it because it comes out of your being level. So that's what we're trying to, to become is this whole person without fear, without ego, without belief, and very thoughtful, plenty of intellect in there that can, that can think and, and judge and, make uh, you know analyses we can do that but we do it all without fear so see there's nothing wrong with analysis there's nothing wrong with with judging a situation it's doing that out of fear is what creates the problem we have to make judgments we have to decide there's always choices to make and when we make those choices we need to do some analysis and we need to make judgments in order to make you know make choices to make good choices but if we do that without fear then all of that works really well. But if we do that in fear, then it just causes us misery and difficulty and we're constantly struggling with the problems that we create for ourselves. So hopefully that will help. Now go on with the last part of that question that I interrupted you to, to, with that, <laughs> that said, maybe the rest of it will have a little different context. <laughs> well, it, the last part of the question, um... Do we need certain amounts of intellect to offset the being level in order to function in virtual reality for certain tasks? But I think you've you've answered yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's again, that's two separate things. Yeah, the being level has all the intellect yeah. it needs because yes, you do need both. You need to consider. You need logical process. You you uh, have to have that as well. You know, if you can think about the uh, the intellect and the uh, you know, intellectual level being on on uh, one hand, and we'll associate that with left brain, say, and the intuitive level and the holistic level, and we'll associate that with right brain. Well, what you need is a right brain and a left brain, you know, two, two sides of this thing, and they need to work together, just like a left arm and a right arm, a left hand and a, and a right hand work together. Most of the things you do 
you do with a cooperation of your right hand and your left hand because the two to reach out and grab or pull or do anything, you use both hands, you see, and they're coordinated. They work together, they help each other. And it's the same way with your left brain, right brain, or with your uh, logical process and your big picture thinking. Those need to all be integrated into one being. And you end up then at the being level without the fear, without the ego, and you're both right brain and left brain at the same time. And it's not that those two struggle for dominance, is that those two are like a right hand and a left hand. They work together so that you can do logical process when you need to do logical process. Like, uh, where did I leave my car keys? Um, you know, <laughs> where are my glasses? Uh, how do I get from point A to point B? You know, what's the most effective way to uh, do my taxes? You know, there's lots of things where logical process is is necessary. You cannot intuit your way through the taxes. You have to fill out forms and put information on a spot and it's got to be right, you know, otherwise you have liability. So you need um, this kind of logical processing and you need big pictures. You just need those to work together as a whole, as a, as a single whole thing and not be fragmented. So the way you do that is by getting rid of the the fear. So yes, the, the two are both necessary. Logic without logical process, then you're you're just kind of floating through life and you don't know which way to go. You're just kind of wandering about. Uh, with logical process, you can have direction. But if you have too much of either one of those and not enough of the opposite, you tend to be a little lost. So you can be very right-brained and no left brain, and people call you an airhead, and uh, somebody has to tell you when to come in out of the rain and you know when it's time to go home because you don't, uh, you don't do that kind of left brain you know, calculation. Otherwise you're very left brain and somebody needs to uh, you know, teach you how to interact with other people you know, and how to see uh, bigger pictures and not just be so, so focused in on the, the little picture that, that interests you. So being just dominant one or the other is not as good as having both work together. That's the that's really the whole model there. It's not this intellect is, is just the bad part. The intellect is a good part. And even when we have a lot of our intellect dedicated to ego and fear, there's still some of our intellect dedicated to love and caring and cooperation. We're not all one sided or the other. Most of us are a mixture. Part of us is about other and about love and part of us is about ourselves and about ego and about fear. It's just trying to make make more of us, you see, uh, about not having fear and more of us into a whole thinking, feeling, authentic being. 